0: okay let's pray father i thank you for all these little boys and girls we're so thankful for them they are a blessing i pray that you would use this time for them to not only learn head knowledge about their savior but i pray that if they don't know you you would even draw them to yourself even this morning pray for the teachers give them wisdom as they seek to instill your gospel into the hearts of these little ones and i pray all these things in jesus name amen I'll see you later. Well, I, I, may have, uh, I may have messed up the communion Sunday order here. I'm not sure, but I was planning on doing some announcements here uh, as we get started. So if you look in your bulletin, you'll see there's face to be Saving Private Ryan. Okay. Now, um, let me just give a little pastoral disclaimer, Okay, if you haven't seen it. I am not encouraging you to leave here this morning and go rent it and watch it this afternoon with your kids, okay? Because it's rated R for a reason. It's very graphic violence. There's strong language. So if you're going to rent it, I've given you a heads up. Watch it with caution, okay, Uh, just before we jump into this. The movie opens with the Americans uh, invading. It's the invasion of Normandy in World War II, and the specific beach is Omaha Beach, and it is a bloodbath. It is the most intense 25, 28 minutes I think I have ever experienced watching a movie. I saw it on my TV, and I still was just, was gripped. It was unbelievable. And they finally take the beach, and eventually Tom Hanks, who's this, you know, one of the stars of the movie, Captain John Miller, he gets his orders, his next orders from his commanding officer. He is to go and find a one James Francis Ryan. Now, James Francis Ryan is one of four brothers, and three of them have already died. And so the, the brass, the top brass of the, of the military have decided that they're going to find James Ryan and send him home so his mother doesn't lose all four of her sons in one war. So Tom Hanks goes out, and he, the first person he talks to is a Corporal Upham, who is a nervous, bumbling man who's a translator and a map maker. but he has to come along because he speaks both French and German, which is going to be very crucial to their mission. So he takes him along, and eventually the whole company start on their search to find and save Private Ryan. Eventually they do, they find Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon, and Tom Hanks tells him about his brothers, and he tells them why they're there, to make sure he gets back home. And, And Matt Damon pretty much says, no way. If you think I'm abandoning my brothers here, and leaving my post, you've got another thing coming because they're at Ramel right now, and they're guarding the bridge at Ramel, and the Germans are on their way, and this is a key bridge, and they cannot let the Germans take this bridge. So Matt Damon, Private Ryan, says, no, I'm not leaving. And he, a very dramatic scene, and he goes and he stands with his brothers behind their uh, little bunker there. And, and and Tom Hanks relents, okay, and he decides that he's going to join, that his men will also join this group defending the bridge, And as they're making plans as far as logistics and who's going to be where and, and firing what, there's Corporal Upham. And you can already see, even though the Germans haven't gotten there, the fear on his face as far as what's going to happen. And he's given a very simple role. You can see the 30 caliber machine gun ammo around his neck. That's his goal. He's going to have two guys shooting a machine gun up in a building. All he has to do is make sure they, get, they keep getting ammunition. That's his job. And as the Germans evade and they come in, there are those two men in the building firing their machine gun. And there's one of them, Mellish, yelling for Upham to get them their ammunition because they're running out. And there we see Upham, he's, he's cowering, hiding behind walls, hiding in ditches, paralyzed by fears. They're running out of ammunition, right? And at this point in the movie, I'm, I'm in my head, I'm going, come on, you know, show some guts here. They're, they're sitting ducks up there. And you're just gonna cower in the ditch? Come on. And that's what he does. And sure enough, they run out of ammo and they are sitting ducks and a couple of Germans come up the stairs and they wind up in vicious hand-to-hand combat. And all the while this is going on, there's Corporal Upham at the bottom of the stairs to the same building, cowering in fear with the ammunition still around his neck and a loaded gun in his hand. And at this point, my blood is boiling, okay? I mean, you've got, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you have got to be kidding me. I mean, get up and do something, man. Don't just sit there. But he sits there, and then that deathly quiet, that eerie quiet comes over, and we see that as a German rounds the corner, that he was the one that was victorious. And as he comes down the stairs, and he sees Corporal Upham, he decides that he's not even worth doing anything about. He's such he is so not a threat, he just walks right past him and leaves him there, cowering. And then we see Corporal Upham and just in a puddle of shame and cowardice, weeping over his fear and his his unwillingness to do anything. And at this point, I am just completely disgusted. Right, My heart is so filled with contempt for this guy. I, I think I even turned to my mom who's sitting next to me on the couch, and I said, what a coward! It's just utter disbelief. Right? And then, you know, a thought occurred to me. You know, what made me think that if I were in Corporal Upham's shoes that I would have acted any differently? What made me think that I would have shown more bravery? You see, I wanted to think that I would have risen to the occasion, right? That I would have been the hero. But deep down, I had this sneaking suspicion that, that as the tanks rolled in and the shrapnel flew and the bullets whizzed past my head as I heard the sounds of two men you know, fighting hand-to-hand combat, that I might have very well played the coward that day. That it might very well have been me sitting at the bottom of the stairs cowering. You see, our passage today is from Matthew 26, and we'll be looking at verses 69 through 75 if you want to turn there. And as we read about Peter denying Jesus three times, it's tempting to read this passage and respond like I did to to Corporal Upham. Right? We might be overcome with disbelief. Peter, how could you do that? Right? Or we might be filled with disgust and contempt for him. Or we might want to scream out, Coward, Peter! but here's the real question. What makes us think that we would have acted any differently than Peter did? What makes us think that we do act any differently than Peter did? See, the reality is is that we're just like Peter. We talk a big game. Remember a couple weeks ago in the garden in Mount Olives, he talked a big game. We sincerely, you know, we sincerely but arrogantly proclaim our loyalty. We trust in our own resolve. And then... Like Peter, we wind up betraying Jesus, our best friend, our Lord, and our God. Just like Peter, we all struggle with being kingdom cowards. And like him, we have to embrace the glorious truth that our only hope, the only hope that we have, is in our courageous King. So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26 as we read verses 69 through 75 together. It says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. and he wept bitterly. Please pray with me. Father, I, uh, we're looking at a weighty passage this morning, and I pray that you would be with us. I pray that even now you would be equipping me and preparing me to share from your word a deep responsibility and privilege. And I pray, Father, that you would soften all of our hearts, including my own, so that we would not only hear the truth of your word, and embrace it in our heads, but that it would sink into our hearts and change us. And I pray that you would use it to change us. I pray that you would use it to make us love our Savior, our merciful, gracious Savior, even more. And it's in his name I pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, I think, um, I think Dave Dorse's opening a couple of weeks ago kind of inspired me. Um, because as I was reading and studying this passage, I kind of had this one, one-sided one conversation with Peter going on in my head, you know. It kind of went like this, Peter, seriously? I mean, how, how could you do that? You know, I, I mean, after three years of seeing all that you saw, the The healings, the storms calmed, the demons booted. How could you do that to Jesus? I mean, don't you remember what you said to him on the Mount of Olives, Peter? Don't you remember when he said all of you were going to fall away that night? And you said, oh, no, 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 Jesus, not me. They may all fall away, but I'll never fall away. And then Jesus told you about that rooster thing, right? Remember he said that before the rooster crowed, that you would disown him three times? And you got even more insistent and indignant I'll die before I deny you, Jesus, you thundered back at him. You know, Peter, I I really thought you were going to follow through. I mean, when they came for Jesus and you whipped out your sword, I mean, sure, slicing off Malchus' ear was a little over the top, but you manned up. I tell you, you really manned up. Even when Jesus was arrested and you joined all the rest and you fled for the hills, I still thought, Peter, you'd redeem yourself because you came back, right? You came back and you followed Jesus to Caiaphas' house, yeah, it was at a distance, but you followed him, okay? And then you even made your way into the courtyard of the high priest's house. I mean, that sure was risky. I mean, that took some guts, Peter. Real guts. But, you know, when the chips were down, Peter, you you chickened out, man. You you were such a coward. I, I mean, you betrayed him not once, not twice, but three times, and it's not like you didn't know it was coming. I mean, how did you ever live with yourself, Peter? That's the conversation that goes on. You know, brothers and sisters, what makes his three-time denial of the Lord even worse and more despicable is how he does it. You see, Matthew tells us that the first time he's approached, it's by a servant girl. Okay, Now, one of the things that makes... Jesus so radical, okay, was his ministry to women and the high value he placed on them. And he was radical because, sadly, in this ancient culture, women are kind of towards the bottom, bottom of the social ladder, okay? And and this servant girl, she's not even a, a mature woman. She's probably 10 to 15 years old. And what makes this girl even less threatening is the fact that she's a slave girl. I mean, women are towards the bottom of the social ladder in this culture, but slaves are at the bottom, okay? So the point is, is, this slave girl is hardly a threat to Peter. And all she says is, you were also with Jesus the Galilean. Wow, that's, that's real threatening, right? And then Peter gives this kind of vague, evasive politician-like denial, right? He says in front of everyone, I do not know what you mean. And you're thinking, yes you do, Peter. You know exactly what they mean. Come on, bro, right? And then he's approached by another servant girl, Matthew tells us. And and this time, Peter takes it up a notch, right? She says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter lies, he denies, and then he throws an oath on top. He says, I do not know the man. But with an oath, what he's really saying is something like this. As God is my witness... I do not know that this man. I mean, do you see how evil this is? I mean, Jesus is already taught that we shouldn't take oaths, right? And Peter not only takes an oath, but then he calls upon God to be witness that he doesn't know Jesus. He invokes God to back up his own lie that he doesn't know God's own son. I mean, that gives me chills just thinking about it. And then a little while later, Matthew tells us that some bystanders say to Peter, you know, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. I mean, it's kind of like they're saying, listen, you know, I mean, come on, man. Jesus is a Galilean, and you have a Galilean accent. How many Galileans do you think we have hanging out here in Caiaphas' courtyard, you know? I mean, it's pretty obvious. And Peter's really feeling the heat now. He's really backed up into a corner. So on this third denial, he pulls out all the stops, Right, he says, I, in effect, he says, I do not know this man, but he also swears and he invokes a curse. It's like he's saying, I don't know this Jesus. I swear, and may God bring curses upon me if I'm lying. That's what it's like, what he said. And at that very moment, in fulfillment of Jesus' earlier prophecy, as soon as the words of Peter's third denial leave his lips, the rooster crows. And as Luke tells us, at that very moment when the rooster crows, Jesus turns and he and Peter meet eye to eye at that very moment. And Matthew tells us that Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly over what he's done. Now again, I ask you, what are you thinking right now? Are you confused by Peter's mighty fall and his failing faith? Are you Angered by his despicable and evil denial of his Lord, are you sickened by Peter's cowardice when he's put to the test? I mean, I'm thinking all these things when I read the passage. I don't know about you, but, but do you see the flawed foundation of thinking these things? There's this, there's this arrogant assumption again that I would have done things differently than Peter did. I think to myself, you know, if I had been in Peter's shoes, I would have stood the test, right? I would have been the hero. I would never have denied my Lord. Sound familiar? But the, re- the truth is that I have denied my Lord. And the reality is, is that I keep denying my Lord. And so do you. You know, we, we deny Jesus in different ways because we struggle with being kingdom cowards. Like Peter, we all struggle with kingdom cowards. Cowardice, okay, we may, like him, brashly confess our loyalty to Jesus. We declare to Jesus that we're willing to die for him, right? And then, in essence, we deny him every single day. You see, denying Jesus is not just the risk for other people in other countries who are being persecuted for their faith. It's not just a risk for us when the Wegmans cashier asks us about our Christian T-shirt or our neighbor asks us about our Grace Happens bumper sticker. No, it's more than that. I want us to consider this, that every time we sin, we in essence deny Jesus. Every sin that we commit is essentially a form of denial. Think about this for for a moment. Sin is a denial that he is Lord and a defiant proclamation on our behalf that we are. It's a denial that of the fact that we're new creations in Christ because we're we continue to live in what we used to be when we were dead in our sins and slave to those sins sin is a thumbing of our noses at Jesus by denying that we know him and that we know what he commands it's a denial of the precious and invaluable price that he paid on the cross his blood when we sin our kingdom courage fails us because it takes courage to deny ourselves. It takes courage to refuse to bow down and worship our own idols. It takes courage to turn away from our sins and to turn to Jesus. It takes guts to face our own sin and to repent of it. But we all wrestle with being kingdom cowards. Our kingdom courage waffles just like Peter, whether we face a spiritual emperor or whether we face a spiritual slave girl. We're just like Peter. There are times we can step out in faith and walk on water, and then we quickly doubt and begin to sink. We can be willing to slice somebody's ear off of the faith, and then we can't stay awake to pray. We can boldly confess, like Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, and then cower at the slightest challenge to our faith. You see, like Peter, you and I, we are these messy blends of kingdom, courage, and kingdom cowardice. And this is why our hope cannot be in ourselves. Our hope needs to be in something else, or better yet, our hope needs to be in someone else. As kingdom cowards, my hope, your hope, rests on nothing else. It must rest on no one else, but upon our courageous King Jesus. And that's my second point. Our hope is in our courageous King Jesus. Jesus, you see, that's where we get in trouble is when we make it all about ourselves. I mean, think about this, okay? If being a Christian was all about us, would Peter's denial ever made it into the Bible? I mean, think about this for a second. Have you ever thought, brothers and sisters, about how, how did the early church find out about Peter's shameful denial? The Gospels tell us there were two, two disciples in Caiaphas' courtyard, one of them was Peter and John tells us there's one other unnamed disciple which was probably the Apostle John, just two. And John didn't write his gospel for many years later. So the question becomes how did the other three guys know to include this? How did Matthew, Mark, and Luke all know about Peter's denial? I'll tell you why it's because Peter knew that it wasn't all about him and it was Peter who was already telling the church about his denial of Jesus. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that blows, that blows my mind. Would you have included that story, you know, that made you look that bad? If it had been me, I would have been very tempted to just kind of forget all the details about that one, right? But Peter doesn't. He doesn't cover up the story. He doesn't spin it. He tells it like it is. And in doing so, he points us right back to our need of Jesus. You see, just by being in our Bibles... Peter's denial oozes application for us. It shows us that like us, an apostle is a fallen sinner too, and that we all desperately need God's grace in Jesus Christ, and that Jesus, not our church leaders, should be our heroes. It makes us see that we need to trust Jesus more and ourselves less. You know, when we view Peter's denial in context of his repentance and role in the early church, it declares to us the unbounding forgiveness and restoration that is found in Christ for even the most grievous, the most grievous sin or denial or betrayal. And it encourages us that we can still be used for the kingdom, even though we're such a mess and even though there are so many times we really mess up. See, but but all these things of application are true because of, of Jesus alone. It's not about Peter, it's not about us, it's about our courageous King, Jesus. Matthew makes this point by how he arranges the material in this chapter, okay? He places the trial of Jesus, which we looked at last week, okay, first, and then right after that, we have the trial of Jesus of Peter, and we have them side by side, and this creates this dramatic contrast between Jesus's courage and Peter's cowardice. You know, Dan Doriani does a fantastic job in his commentary of bringing out this point. He points out that while Jesus is falsely accused of sedition and blasphemy, Peter is rightly accused of being Jesus's disciple. Jesus is questioned by the high priest, Peter is questioned by the high priest's servants. Jesus courageously stands before his questioners denying nothing, and Peter cowers and denies everything. Jesus bravely stands firm and goes to the cross for Peter, and Peter cowardly waffles and denies even knowing him. When Jesus is arrested, Peter initially flees, and then he lies to save his own skin, and Jesus really offers offers his own life for Peter even though he knows that he's going to be betrayed by him. You see, our hope must be in our courageous King Jesus who bravely put on a body of flesh and suffered the pains and trials of this world, who bravely and perfectly obeyed all of God's law in our our stead, who courageously stayed the course and submitted to his Father's will even though he knew it would lead to a horrible death. Our courageous king, who valiantly watched as sinners nailed his hands and feet to the cross, enduring the shame and the pain and the full weight of God's eternal fury, when he never committed any crime, when he was guilty of no sin, and he did this all for whom? He did it for for rebels and sinners and kingdom cowards, like me, like Peter and like you. I mean that's why all praise and all honor and glory and majesty and power go to our heroic King Jesus whose steadfast courage was rooted in his unshakable faithfulness and his unfailing love. Let's put our hope in our courageous King this morning. You know, I was recently heard a story about a man who had that kind of hope in our brave King, Jesus. I was listening to Ravi Zacharias on the radio a week or so ago, and he was telling the story of uh, Wang Mingdao, whom he had met in the 1990s. And Wang Mingdao was a famous Chinese evangelist and and pastor in the 40s and 50s, and he was greatly used to spread the gospel in China. In fact, many of the house churches that exist today can be traced to the fruit of his ministry. And when the communists under Mao took over China after World War II, their atheist regime sought to establish a state-controlled church. They called it the Three-Self Patriotic Movement. And Wang Mingdao refused to join the state church, and he was charged with resisting the government, and he was thrown into prison with a sentence of 15 years. And sadly, while in prison a short time, Wang Mingdao, succumbed to kingdom cowardice, and he recanted his Christian faith. And he confessed the crimes that he didn't commit so that he would be freed from prison. And after getting out, he experienced such mental anguish and such torment of soul that he told Zacharias that he walked around the streets of Beijing saying over and over again, my name is Peter, my name is Peter, I've denied my Lord. But the Lord worked in his heart. And he helped him to trust in his courageous king. And knowing that he would go straight back to prison, Wang Mingdao revoked that confession and spent the next 18 years with daily beatings and cruel torture and working in a Chinese labor camp. And every morning, he would wake up and he'd sing the Fanny Crosby hymn, All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide, heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell, for I know what befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. And the prison guards tried to silence him. And when they weren't able to succeed, they just put up with his singing every morning. And gradually, as the years went by, they would gather near the opening of his cell to listen as Wang Mingdao sang of his God's faithfulness to him. And then they began to ask him to sing. And they began to ask him to teach them the words of the song. Now, I ask you, how could a man who fell so far as a kingdom coward suddenly have the courage to face decades of being in a communist prison camp? How could a man who faced regular beatings and torture for years and years sing every day of the heavenly comfort and divine peace, that was, that was his. Look to the song he sang every morning. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Through his brokenness, Wang Mingdao had a life-changing life changing encounter with the tender mercy of Jesus Christ. It was the same tender mercy that Peter had encountered, encountered, the tender mercy of a Savior who would still go to the cross and die for a man he knew would be a kingdom coward and deny him. It was the same tender mercy that after Peter wept bitterly over his sin, it was the same mercy that showered Peter with divine kindness that eventually led to his repentance. It was the same tender mercy found in the incarnate Jesus Christ that after the resurrection invited kingdom coward Peter to sit down at a meal at a meal where Jesus restored him three times by asking him, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Peter, do you love me? See, brothers and sisters, Jesus' tender mercy changes us in our brokenness. It leads us to fix our eyes on him and not on ourselves. It leads us to trust in his courage and his resolve and faithfulness and not our own. It makes us aware of how desperately we need the grace of the gospel, and it fills our hearts with the kind of love and gratitude that makes obeying Jesus much more precious to us than the attraction of denying him. It's a tender mercy that causes us to run to him after our kingdom, kingdom courage has failed. You see, only the tender mercy of our courageous King Jesus can change a man like Peter, a man who in Matthew 26 denies Jesus to a servant girl and is changed into a man who in Acts 5 courageously looks the Sanhedrin in the eyes and says, No! I cannot obey what you're commanding me to do. I must obey God and not man. I must preach the name of Jesus. That mercy changes people into men and women who, like Peter, rejoiced because after he took that stand, he was flogged as punishment. And he rejoiced in it because he was counted worthy to suffer such disgrace for the same name that he said he must preach the name of Jesus. See, only resting in this kind of tender mercy from our courageous king could have led Peter, the kingdom coward denier, to request at his execution, as tradition tells us, he requested to be crucified upside down. Why? Because he didn't see himself worthy as dying the same way as his Lord. This morning my fellow kingdom cowards. I'm calling us to rest and hope in our courageous King Jesus. I'm calling us to admit that we deny our Lord and I'm praying that we will all be led to repentance, myself included. Like I said, Luke tells us that when the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked Peter straight in the eyes. The rooster has crowed for us brothers and sisters the rooster is crowing and the rooster will crow again for us how will you respond when Jesus looks you in the eyes will you see the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that are there how will you respond will you bitterly weep in repentance you know this this morning we're celebrating the Lord's Supper And this is what I leave you with. Do you hear Jesus' merciful invitation to sit down and share a meal? Do you hear his gracious invitation to be restored? Do we hear him tenderly calling out to us, Do you love me? Dave, do you love me? Mark, do you love me? Todd, do you love me? Anne Marie, do you love me? Do you love me, Jill? Do you love me, Courtney? Do you love me? Let's pray. Father, I uh, I'm overwhelmed by just my need this morning, as I preach to others, and I pray for us. I pray, I pray that we would be much slower to fall into a place where we We rely on ourselves and think that we can do it and trust in ourselves more than you. It's just simply not true. We need you so desperately and I pray that we would leave this morning knowing that. And I pray that you would convict us, convict us of our sin and and with your kindness lead us to repentance this morning. And that through your spirit you would give us your kingdom courage to love you and obey you and to trust you. Father, meet us in a special way at this fellowship meal. Give us the grace that we so desperately need. I thank you for the incredible price that you pay, the unfathomable price in order for us to be even able to celebrate this supper today. Thank you. And I pray all these things in the matchless name of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen.